why, why aren't you people out running? <laughs> um, my name is Gerald Howard, um, and I'm the chairman of the events committee of the Penn American Center. Uh, Greg Tobin, the editorial director of the Quality Paperback Book Club, was meant to do the introductory honors, uh, but he's been flattened by a flu bug. And so I am doing the honors, and I'm honored and delighted to be able to do so. Uh, this reading tonight is the first of two public events in a conference slash celebration entitled Native American Voices, a Dialogue Across the Generations. Uh, before I start my brief remarks about the conference uh, and begin to introduce our five readers, I want to acknowledge uh, some places, people, and things that have made this conference possible. First off, uh, tremendous thanks to the Quality Paperback Book Club and Greg Tobin and others there for A, having the idea for this conference in the first place, B, their generous financial support, and C, the use of their facilities tomorrow for uh, the panel discussion, uh, which will take place at the Time Life Auditorium at the Time Life Building, Avenue of the Americas and 50th Street. Uh, while we're talking about money, I should also acknowledge uh, the uh, equally generous, or possibly not equally, but I'm sure it was generous, financial support of the New York Council for the Humanities. Uh, next, uh, uh, much thanks to the American Indian Community House uh, for the use of their gallery uh, museum on Broadway for a reception held earlier uh, this afternoon for the conference participants and for Penn members. Uh, it was a lovely occasion in precisely the right spot for it. Finally, as usual, there has been more work done uh, behind the scenes than you or I will ever know to bring this conference off, uh, and we owe a debt of gratitude to uh, Penn's tireless events coordinator, Pamela Pierce, and her equally tireless assistant, uh, Karen Hua. Now, uh, about this conference, Native American Voices, and the reading to follow. Uh, I'm sure many of the people, or most of the people in this audience, have been aware of the publicity around the opening of the new Museum of the American Indian, which has been installed in the Customs House at the very southern tip of uh, this island. The idea was to find a fitting home uh, for many of the uh, almost numberless Native American artifacts of, uh, of a collector, a 19th century collector by the name of George High. Um, I think of him more as a vacuum cleaner um, who took a, a, really an uncompromising shop till you drop approach to uh, his acquisitions. Uh, this literal treasure trove of uh, sacred and everyday objects uh, was incongruously uh, warehoused in a museum little visited uh, on Audubon Terrace on Upper Broadway. Uh, many of these pieces have, however, been reinstalled very sensitively in, a much more, in the much more accessible customs house. Uh, and I was fascinated by one strategy that the director of the museum, Richard West, who is himself an American Indian developed uh, to liberate, as it were, these once mute artifacts and allow them to speak uh, as eloquently as they once did. Uh, he gave eight or nine Native American artists um, almost free reign of the collection to select pieces uh, they wanted and to place them in unique installations, art pieces in their own right, uh, that free these objects 
and restore something of their real magic. Uh, this exercise, it seems to me, um, is all about the creation of a proper cultural context by Native Americans, but for us all, so that the indelible spirit of the past can live in the present. Uh, so what has been lost can be properly mourned, while uh, what has been saved, or uh, more precisely, what has survived, both physically and spiritually, can be cherished. It's about reclaiming a heritage and celebrating and demonstrating an indomitable survival. Well, as James Welch writes in the final sentence of his new nonfiction book, Killing Custer, the Indian spirit was and remains hard to break. Our five writers this evening have been accomplishing for quite a while in prose and poetry and performance much the same task that those Native American artists have set themselves downtown preserving the necessary artifacts of the past and creating the proper context and meaning for them in the present. They are Scott Mamaday, James Welch, Joy Harjo, uh, Sherman Alexi, and Muriel Miguel, and they are, spiritually speaking, curators and creators at once. The subtitle of this conference, A Dialogue Across the Generation, makes the point that contemporary Native American writing now has a history that in fact encompasses generations. I count about two and a half of them uh, with us tonight. Uh, the very impulse for this conference makes the point that Native American writing has become, through sheer strength of artistry, a force to be reckoned with in American literature. We American readers of all backgrounds are being presented with a gift that uh, no one of the many other American cultures could offer us and that enriches us beyond the dreams of casino operators everywhere. I will be introducing each of our readers in turn, and they in turn will read first from the work of a writer or writers who first influenced them, uh, you can expect some surprises, and then from their own work. And um, our first reader will be N. Scott Momaday, one of the most uh, honored and distinguished of living American authors. A Kiowa Indian, he is the Regents Professor of Humanities at the University of Arizona, where he directs projects that focus on the Native American oral tradition and concepts of the sacred. In 1969, he received the Pulitzer Prize uh, for fiction for his classic novel, House Made of Dawn. His other books include The Way to Rainy Mountain, The Ancient Child, and recently, in the presence of the sun. And he has forthcoming uh, the storyteller in his art, nonfiction from Oxford University Press, uh, the blind astrologer, poetry from St. Martin's Press, and a dark, indifferent rage, a novel from Doubleday and Scott Momaday. Thank you very much, and good evening. I don't have much time, and so I'm going to get right to, uh, I want to read about three different things to you. Uh, by the way, I am a trustee of the board of, uh, on, I'm on the board of the Museum of the American Indian, and it's true that uh, George Gustav High uh, was one of the great collectors of all time, I suppose, 
and I'm told that uh, uh, when he was disinclined to travel, he would simply send a ship down to some place like Brazil with instructions to bring back a shipload of artifacts, and that's exactly what happened. So it is, it is a fantastic collection, uh, the greatest, most comprehensive collection of Indian artifacts in the world. Um, I have a friend, Christopher Logue, who is a British poet, and he is busy these days uh, making um, a paraphrase, a paraphrase of uh, Homer's The Iliad. And the first of the publications is uh, entitled War Music, and I want to read just a passage. Christopher Logue, I think, out Homer's Homer, as one of his critics put it, uh, and you'll see why when I read this, I think. And God turned to Apollo, saying, Mouse God, take my sarpedon out of range and clarify his wounds with mountain water. Moisten his body with tinctures of white myrrh and violet iodine. And when these chrisms dry, fold him in miniver that never wears and lints that never fade. And call my two blind footmen, sleep and death, to carry him to Lycia by Taurus, where playing stone chimes and tambourines, his tribe will consecrate his death before whose memory the stones shall fade. And Apollo took Sarpedon out of range and clarified his wounds with mountain water, moistened his body with tinctures of white myrrh and violet iodine. And when these chrisms dried, he folded him in miniver and lints that never wear, that never fade, and called God's two blind footmen, sleep and death, who carried him before whose memory the stones shall fade to Lycia by Taurus. Isn't that great? God, I wish I had written that. You know, I was having dinner with Christopher in London a couple of years ago, and I reminded him of this passage and told him how much I appreciated it, and he, I said, uh, don't you like it too, Christopher? And he said, yes, yes, I do. And do you know, Scott, why I like it so much? Because I got to do it twice. <laughs> okay. Uh, from my own work, I would like to read you a poem that uh, I wrote actually in Russia. But it bears, it has to do directly with the Southwest, which is my native land. And uh, in Russia, I had a great longing for, for the uh, place of my upbringing. And so I found myself writing about the American Southwest as I was looking out my river at the Moscow Sut skyline across the uh, Moscow River. I have to tell you a little story before I read you this poem. It's entitled, Forms of the Earth at Abiquiu. Abiquiu is a little uh, a penitente village north and a little west of Santa Fe, and it's where George O'Keefe had a home. 
And uh, one day in the early 70s, it must have been about 1972, um, she invited me to come uh, for, you know, conversation and, and, uh, and uh, some refreshment. And so I was just quivering with excitement. I had not met this great artist before, and I so admired her work. And so I was delighted to call upon her one February afternoon when it was crisp and the light was absolutely stunning. And I went up and I knocked on her door. And she came and opened the door, and she was in a tuxedo, very uh, stiff collar, white collar, her hair drawn severely back like mine, these wonderful large artist's hands. She invited me in and we sat down. She began to show me the things in her living room. It was like a, it was like a museum in a way. She was doing what are called her rock paintings at the time. She was painting pictures of rocks. She loved rocks and stones and she would go out and pick up beautiful stones in the arroyos and her window boxes were filled with beautiful stones. And uh, she had the skulls of animals around. There was a little glass case in which there was the skeleton of a snake, one of the most delicate and beautiful things that I have ever seen. She showed me the fireplace, the adobe fireplace she had made with her own hands. And I was just delighted. And we talked, we chatted. And uh, after, a, after a while, it occurred to George O'Keefe that she had neglected to offer me refreshment. And so she got a little... Uh, unsettled, she was a little nervous, and she begged my pardon and said, "Oh, wouldn't you, wouldn't you care for uh, something to drink?" And I could not have cared less because I was having such a good time. And I, I told her that I said, "Oh, please don't bother. I'm, I'm fine." But uh, she persisted, and uh, she was already in her 80s, you see. And so finally, I said, "All right, well, please, I will have a." If you have some scotch and uh, a little water, that would be wonderful. So she dismissed herself, she excused herself, and she went out of the room and into the kitchen, and she did not return. <laughs> well, actually, there's a little more to the story than that, but um, <clears throat> I sat there and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And then, to my dismay, there came a racket from the kitchen, like pots and pans banging together. And I, well, I thought, what, what, what on earth is going on? Is this, is this uh, old lady in trouble? Should I, should I go, or would that simply be an embarrassment? Should I stay and wait? And uh, so it was, it was really quite, a, quite an uncomfortable time. But to my great relief, she did, she did uh, return. But she was more flustered than ever. And she said, oh, my dear, it's my maid's day off, and I don't know what she did with the key to the liquor pantry. <laughs> to my utter dismay, she went out again and did not return. And I sat there waiting, and wait again, the din from the kitchen, banging. And uh, I developed a tick under this eye. I still, it, it's recurrent. It comes and goes. Uh, beads, beads of blood had uh, begun to appear on my forehead. 
And just as I was ready to uh, buy the farm, <laughs> she returned with my drink on a silver tray. And it happens that this 80-odd-year-old woman had taken the pantry doors off at the hinges <laughs> with a screwdriver. That's a true story. And so, of course, I had to write a poem um, and dedicate it to her. I called upon her several times after that, and I found out that uh, she loved goat's cheese and good wine, and I always brought goat's cheese and wine when I called upon her, and we had wonderful luncheons and conversations. Forms of the Earth at Abiquiu for George O'Keefe. I imagine the time of our meeting there among the forms of the earth at Abiquiu, and other times that followed from the one, an easy conjugation of stories and late luncheons of wine and cheese. All around there were beautiful objects, clean and precise in their beauty, like bone, indeed bone. A snake in the filaments of bone, the skulls of cows and sheep, and the many smooth stones in the window, in the flat winter light, were beautiful. I wanted to feel the sun in the stones, the ashen, far-flung winter sun. And then in those days, too, I made you the gift of a small brown stone, and you described it with the tips of your fingers, and knew at once that it was beautiful. At once, accordingly, you knew as you knew the forms of the earth at Abiquiu, that time involves them, and they bear away beautiful, various, remote, in failing light, and the coming of cold. And as a footnote to that poem, I, I happened to be giving a reading at, at Bucknell University several years, well, the day she died, the day she died. And I had the poem with me, and so I was uh, privileged to read that poem on that occasion. I brought a, a book, a novel called The Ancient Child. And there, is a, there is a brief passage in it that I would like to read to you. I must tell you a little bit about uh, the circumstances first. Uh, the novel is about a contemporary artist, a painter, I'm a painter, so I was really drawing upon that experience. Um, he discovers in the course of the novel his Indian heritage. And uh, moreover, he discovers that he has uh, the power of the bear. And uh, it is a, a kind of destructive element within him. But through the help of a medicine woman, a young, beautiful woman whose name is Gray. Uh, he, he finally confronts the bear at the end of the novel. So um, the passage I want to read you has to do with uh, a conversation between an old Kiowa chief whose name is Setangya and Billy the Kid. Now, how does that happen? That's not a likely thing, is it, I mean? <laughs> but it happens that Gray, the girl, fantasizes about Billy the Kid. He is one of her glories, and he, she has read everything she could put her hands on about Billy. And she imagines him there, and there are, one, there are passages in it in which her imagination takes on a wonderful kind of 
Sheen, and she, she uh, talks to Billy, she tells stories about him, and she's with him on some of his escapades. Setangya, the chief, is, uh, is a real man, he were based upon a real character. Setangya was a famous Kiowa chief, uh, and he was the leader of the Kaitsenko Society, which is the crazy dog society in the Kiowa tribe, composed of ten men only, and the ten most brave, and he was their leader. There is one photograph of him in the National Archive, and he's looking with malice into the lens of the camera, one eye glaring, the other a slit. We don't know whether there's an eye there or not. His hair is long and scraggly. He has a Fu Manchu mustache, a buffalo robe across his shoulders, and a bandolier. His hands are wonderfully gnarled. And uh, he had a favorite son. I tell you a little bit about him because he was mad, uh, divinely mad, like Lear. He had a favorite son who was killed in Texas, and when he found out about it, Satangya, which, uh, his name means sitting bear, went down to Texas and gathered up the bones of his son. And from that time on, he placed the bones on the back of a horse and led the horse around wherever he went. And at night, he would place the bones in a special little ceremonial teepee, and he would say to the people, come, come and pay your respects. My son is at home tonight. Well, he and two other chiefs were captured by the, by the army in connection with the Warren wagon train fight. They were imprisoned at Fort Sill. And uh, shackled hand and foot, they were placed in the bed of a wagon. They were going to be removed to the railhead and uh, transferred to Huntsville, Texas, to the prison there. And uh, as they were moving along Fort Sill on a road which is now called Sitting Bear Road, Tsetangya, Sitting Bear, began to sing the song of the Koitsenko which was each of, the, each of the members of the Koitsenko, well, the Koitsenko Society had a song. It could only be sung uh, in, at the moment of death, in the face of death. And he began to sing this song. The other chiefs were greatly alarmed, and they said, no, 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 you can't do that. Please, what are you doing? It's taboo. And he said, do you see the tree ahead? There was a cottonwood growing beside the, the road. It's no longer there, but it was there. He said, by the time we reach that tree, I will be dead. He pulled a knife, which he had secreted somehow on his being, uh, and stabbed the teamster in the leg. There were two armed guards on either side of the wagon, and they killed him. They shot him down on the spot. And he's the only Indian buried in the military uh, cemetery at Fort Sill. But he was true to his word. And uh, so the character in the novel, Gray, fantasizes uh, about Billy the Kid, but she remembers uh, what she has heard about Setangya, this great chief. And in this passage, she imagines that they meet for the first time. The old man sat on the ground, his head bent, his legs crossed. Within his reach was the bundle of bones, the bones of his son. There was a sound, and he brought his head up sharply, glaring. The young man was standing a few feet away beside a pont blanche, waiting respectfully for the old man to acknowledge him. Respectfully, too, he was looking not directly at the old man, nor at the bones of his son, but to one side where there was a small stand of willows. Oh, how long have you been there? Clearly, the old man was unsettled, perhaps ashamed of being taken by surprise. Not long, 
Well, what do you want? I come to pay my respects. I come to visit you and your son. Here's tobacco. Oh. Oh. You, uh, you know my son? In a way. In a way. There was a pause in which the old man seemed to ponder this in a way. He looked down at the bundle of bones, crushing a pinch of tobacco in his fingers, then up again. You are about the same age, I think. Yes. And, 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 and do, do you know me, too, in a way? You. You are Setanya, sitting bear, a warrior and chief as great as his name. Over all the prairies, you are famous for your bravery and your deeds. Your mind is true. Your words are true, and your heart is true. The eagles know your name. The buffalo knows your name. The bear knows your name. The white man knows your name. You are Satanya, chief of the Kaitsenko Society, chief of the crazy dogs, chief of the dog soldiers. Yours are the best of warriors. Yours are the best of battles. Yours are the best of enemies. You are Satanya who does not surrender his son to death who dares to withhold victory from even the greatest of all enemies. Hear me, old man, brave to madness, oh, my warrior. You and your son, great chief, you are worthy of each other in your courage and loyalty and love and bigness of spirit. Your son in his bones, and you in your flesh and blood, are of the same sacred mystery, the same medicine most powerful. Hear me, I am honored to make you this speech, to make you this respectful visit, to stand here in your company, O oh, sitting bear, yours and your sons. I have spoken. Oh, oh you, you have spoken well said the old man softly, gravely, after the appropriate silence. Now I know you, in a way. You are surely a famous orator among your people. Uh, well, no, sir. My son, my son, I, I do not admire modesty. I like boasting. I love to boast, and I like others to boast if they have something about themselves to boast of. You have very pretty words about you. Why don't you boast of them? Well, I'm right proud you like my speech, sir. But to tell you the truth, it ain't mine. You see, my girlfriend wrote it up and I learnt it. Oh. I, I cannot read myself. I memorized it and then I declaimed it. Why? I wanted you to like me. Yes? I wanted to talk to you about death. 
but I am a man of few words. Yes, yes, yes. There is something else about you. There is a sign, a, 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 a mark upon you. And there was a mark upon my son. And there is a mark upon me, but I'm an old man, and so for me it matters very little. But my son and you, you are young men, and you are marked men. It is a thing heavy on my heart. I have so few words. I wanted you to like me. I know you in a way. I'm a dead man. Yes, yes. Tell me, tell me, did you achieve your death in the proper way? I guess so. It happened so fast, and I wasn't expecting it, not at that moment, though I had been looking into the shadows for a long time. My son died in the proper way. So did you. Ah, yeah, ah, you have heard about that. Yes, yes, so they say. There was not a whimper, no pleading, no shame. I had no time for any of that. Yes, yes, I, th I think neither did my son, but I had time, and I neither whimpered nor pled. Rather, I sang. I can't sing. <laughs> Thank you very much. <clears throat> Our next reader is James Welch. James Welch is part Blackfeet, part Grovant Indian. He is an award-winning poet, novelist, screenwriter, and now historian. He attended school uh, on Blackfeet and Fort Belknap reservations in Montana and studied writing at the University of Montana with the late and much-beloved uh, Richard Hugo. His poetry collection, Writing the Earth Boy 40, was, pu first pu was published in 1970. It has been followed by four novels, Winter in the Blood, The Death of Jim Loney, Fool's Crow, which received the Los Angeles Times uh, Book Prize, and The Indian Lawyer. Uh, his latest book, the nonfiction work Killing Custer, uh, emerged from his work on the screenplay for the American Experience documentary Last Stand at Little Bighorn, which was directed by Paul Steckler and narrated, incidentally, by Ann Scott Momaday. In the spirit of full disclosure, you should know that I am uh, Jim Welch's enormously proud editor at W.W. Norton. James Welch. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Uh, 
I will just jump right into uh, uh, my influences. And as Jerry mentioned, uh, my first and foremost influence was uh, Richard Hugo, uh, who is my mentor, uh, teacher, uh, inspiration at the University of Montana. Uh, and I wasn't alone. There were many of us who were inspired by this man who uh, kind of looked like a dock worker and uh, uh, had a lot of bad habits. And he made us uh, realize that practically anybody can write. <laughs> you don't have to look like uh, Richard Burton or whatever. And um, so we did write. And, and uh, in fact, I'd like to dedicate my reading tonight to Richard Hugo. I'll read a couple of his poems, and then I want to read a, a small prose piece uh, from a writer who, another writer who influenced me. First poem I'd like to read is called The Squatter on Company Land. Uh, Dick, uh, before he came to Montana, uh, worked for 13 years for Boeing out in Seattle as a uh, tech writer. And so the company is Boeing in this particular case. We had to get him off, the dirty elf, wild hair and always screaming at his wife, and due to own our land in two more years. A mudflat point along the river where we planned our hammer shop. Him, his thousand rabbits, the lone goat tied to his bed, his menial wife, all out. To him, a rainbow trail of oil might mean a tug upstream, a boom, a chance a log would break away and float to his lasso. He'd destroy the owner's mark and bargain harshly with the mill. He'd weep and yell when salmon runs went by, rolling to remind him he would never cheat the sea. When did life begin? Began with running from a hatchet, some wild woman held, her hair a gray cry in alfalfa, where he dug and cringed. Began in rain that cut the light into religious shafts. Or just began the way all hurt begins, hit and dropped, the next man always righteous, the last one climbing with a standard tongue. In his quick way, swearing at us, pressed against the fence, he gathered rags and wood and heaped them in the truck and told his wife, get in, and rode away, a solid glare that told us we were dying in his eyes. And the next uh, poem by him I'd like to read is called The Church on Kamayakan Hill. He always wrote about the Northwest until he came to Montana, then he wrote about Montana. These poems are from his book, uh, Death of the Kapowson Tavern, which was his second book, and which was the first one I read. And it was, it was just uh, totally inspirational to me, so that's why I chose these poems from Death of the Kapowson Tavern. The lines are keen against today's bad sky about to rain. We're white and understand why Indians sold butter for the funds to build this church. Four hens and a rooster huddle on the porch. We are dark and know why no one climbed to pray. The priest who did his best to imitate a bell watched the river full of spirits coil below the hill, relentless for the bay. A church abandoned to the wind is portent. In high wind, ruins make harsh music. The priest is tending bar. His dreams have paid outrageous fees 
for stone and mortar. His eyes are empty as a chapel, roofless in a storm. Greek temples seemed the same as 40 centuries ago. If we used one corner for a urinal, he wouldn't swear we hadn't worshipped here. The chickens cringe. Rain sprays chaos where the altar and the stained glass would have gone had Indians not eaten tribal cows one hungry fall. Despite the chant, salmon haven't come. The first mass and a phone line cursed the river. If rain had rhythm, it would not be Latin. Children do not wave as we drive out. Like these graves, ours may go unmarked. Can we be satisfied when dead with daffodils for stones? These Indians, whatever they once loved or used for God, the hill, the river, the bay burned by the moon, they knew that when you die, you lose your name. And my next uh, influence is Conversation in Sicily, a very small little penguin book that I picked up once, uh, written by a man named Elio Vittorini. And uh, this book is basically about um, uh, a man's trip home to Sicily. And I'll read the first little piece here that will really give you the, the whole idea of what the book is about. Uh, an underlying theme is, is uh, anti-fascism. He wrote it during the uh, Second World War, during the fascist period. And, and uh, so it's important in that way. But it's important to me for the language and, and for the structure. So I'll just read the first little piece here. That winter I was haunted by abstract furies. I won't try and describe them because they're not what I intend to write about. But I must mention that they were abstract furies, not heroic or even live. Some sort of furies concerning the doomed human race. They had obsessed me for a long time and I was despondent. I saw the screaming newspaper placards and I hung my head. I would see my friends, pass an hour or two with them in silence and dejection. My wife or my girl would be expecting me, but downcast, I would meet them without exchanging a word. Meanwhile, it rained and rained as the days and months went by. My shoes were tattered and soggy with rain. There was nothing but the rain, the slaughter on the newspaper placards, water in my dilapidated shoes, and my taciturn friends. My life was like a blank dream, a quiet hopelessness. That was the terrible part, the quietude of my hopelessness, to believe mankind to be doomed, and yet to feel no fever to save it, but instead to nourish a desire to succumb with it. I was shaken by abstract furies, but not in my blood. I was calm, unmoved by desires. I did not care whether my girl was expecting me, whether or not I met her, glanced over the leaves of a dictionary, went out and saw my friends, or stayed at home. I was calm, as if I had not lived a day, nor known what it meant to be happy, as if I had nothing to say, to affirm or deny, nothing to hazard, nothing to listen to, devoid of all urge. And as, and as if in all the years of my life, I had never eaten bread, drunk wine or coffee, never been to bed with a woman, never had children, never come to blows with anyone, as if I had not thought all such things possible, as if I had never been a man, never alive, 
never a baby, spending my infancy in Sicily, among the prickly pears, the sulfur mines, and the mountains. But the abstract furies stirred violently within me, and I bowed my head, pondering mankind's doom. And all the while it rained, and I did not exchange a word with my friends, and the rain seeped through my shoes. A lot of people think uh, my first couple books were kind of grim, and maybe uh, this, that's where it came from. <laughs> uh, okay, I'd just like to um, uh, read a piece from my first novel, Winter in the Blood, which was uh, influenced by that particular book that I just uh, read from. <coughs> And, and in this passage, the narrator, who is not named in this novel, uh, uh, thinks of his, uh, uh, his grandmother, who, who turns out to be a Blackfeet Indian, and she tells him stories, and this is one of the uh, stories she told him. The woman who was Teresa's mother had told me many things, many stories from her early life. My brother Mose had been alive at the time, when one winter evening, as we sat at the foot of her rocker, she revealed a life we never knew, this woman who was our own kin. She told us of her husband, Standing Bear, a Blackfeet like herself, from the plains west of here, just below the Rocky Mountains. She was a girl, barely in her teens, when Standing Bear bartered with her father, a man of some renown, a man with many scars and horses. Her husband gave her father two ponies and three robes for the young girl. The reason she came so cheap, she said, was because her father had already given away four daughters. One of these daughters was Standing Bear's second wife, so she became the third and sat between his older wives and his daughters. His sons sat on the other side of him. When guests came for meals, she sat even further away from him but she was happy to be the wife of such a man. Sometimes she slept with him, though he was almost 30 years older than she was. On those nights, beneath the woolly robes, she snuggled against his large body and sang softly in his ear. He was good, gentle, and like her father, a chief. She sang to him. It came as no surprise when the long knives rode onto the plains up near the mountains. Camps were dismantled, the teepee poles serving now as travoy frames to carry supplies, furniture, and old people. The dogs panted be beside the horses, trying to catch what little shade the larger animals offered. Women and children walked along sagebrush miles in the heat, in the dust the travoys kicked up behind a small band of mounted warriors. Fish had warned them, Fish the medicine man, the long knives will be coming soon, he said, for now that the seasons change, there is a smell of steel in the air. A week later, the soldiers did come, but the camp was abandoned. Everything had been taken, and the only signs that a community had existed were the teepee rings and fireplaces and a few sticks which had been the racks that held the drying meat. It was a barren scene that greeted the soldiers. It had been in the fall, According to our grandmother, two bands had come together at a campsite beside a snaking vein of water, flanked by stands of willow and lodgepole pines.
that would become known as Little Badger. To the south, Hart Butte served as a lookout and fortress if necessary, and to the west, the great mountains with their snow caps and granite faces above the timberline. The two bands had decided to winter together and settled in to wait for the first wind out of the north. The days remained hot, but the nights came colder. Fires dotted the campsite, and in the middle, around a larger fire, men sat and talked and played stick game late into the night. A feast celebrated their coming together, and for three days the old lady, then a girl, wailed with the women around the perimeter of jogging hunters. When the men rested, she owl danced and threw snakes with the other girls. A dust cloud hung over the campsite until the er early hours of morning. It was on the third morning that Fish made his prophetic announcement. A week later, the scouts rode down from the butte, their horses lathered and out of breath. When the old lady had related this story many years ago, her eyes were not flat and filmy. They were black like a spider's belly, and the small black hands drew triumphant pictures in the air. Um, okay, the band split up. Heavy Runner's group went north, following the east slope of the mountains into Canada. Standing Bear's people followed Little Badger, then Birch Creek east to the Marias River, which twisted through the hot, dry plains and it till, turn, till it turned south to enter the Missouri. They traveled east and slightly north of the morning sun until they made camp in the Bear Paw Mountains. From here they made their way north to the Milk River Valley, where they put in one of the hardest winters known to the old lady. Many of the band starved to death that winter. Standing Bear himself died in a futile raid on the Grovans, who were also camped in the valley. When the survivors led his horse into camp, his eldest son killed it, and the family lived off the meat for many days. The horse was killed because Standing Bear would need it in the next world. They ate it because they were starving. My grandmother was not yet 20 when she became a widow. With gravity, and we had no reason to doubt her, she told us she had been a beautiful girl, slender with flawless brown skin and long hair greased and shiny as the wing of a raven. But because she was the widow of Standing Bear, a great leader, the young men of the tribe shied away from her, and the women treated her as an outcast. She possessed a dark beauty, a gift the women envied, though they must have laughed at her willowy body's barrenness, for she had produced no children, had slept with Standing Bear only to whisper her songs. Now the old lady snored in her cot on the other side of the wall. The house lay in the shadow of a brown moon. From somewhere down the valley, three or four coyotes began to bark, sharp and high-pitched like puppies. A sudden breeze made the night sounds and my own heartbeat. And I think I will stop right there because uh, it goes on. <laughs> Thank you very much. Our next reader, Joy Harjo, 
was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is a member of the Creek Tribe. She holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and teaches creative writing at the University of New Mexico. She has published four volumes of poetry, including She Had Some Horses and In Mad Love and War, and has received an American Book Award, a Josephine Miles Award for Excellence in Literature from the Penn Oakland Center, and the Delmore Schwartz Award from uh, NYU. She has forthcoming from Norton, a collection of poetry, The Woman Who Fell from the Sky, from Harcourt Brace, a children's book, The Good Luck Cat, and from the University of Arizona Press, an anthology of Native American writing with a marvelous title, Reinventing the Enemy's Language. Joy Harjo. Thank you. It's good to be here. When I started thinking about my influences, early influences in writing poetry, I had to think of my mother. You know, perhaps our mothers' and fathers' voices influence us first of all. And I think of my mother's singing. And what my mother sang most often around the house were those heartbreak songs sung by people like Patsy Cline. Crazy. I used to hear that all the time from her. And I think even though I don't particularly like country western music myself, it's still, I still have to acknowledge it as an influence, and particularly that, that heartbreak stuff. And maybe that's why I like James Wright so much, and why I consider him an influence. When I first started writing poetry in my early 20s, as a student at the University of New Mexico, it's James, Wright James Wright's poetry that was being handed around by Leslie Silco, Simon Ortiz, Lance Henson. And I think what was so appealing was that he seemed to know America. I mean, right now we're in a crisis in this country. You know, who are we? You know, who are we all here together? And I think he was one of the poets and one of the earliest poets in some ways to really deal with the seams of the heartbreak and really look at who he was in the middle of America. So I'm going to read a poem here of his called St. Judas. St. Judas. When I went out to kill myself, I caught a pack of hoodlums beating up a man. Running to spare his suffering, I forgot my name, my number, how my day began, how soldiers milled around the garden stone and sang amusing songs, how all that day their javelins measured crowds, how I alone bargained the proper coins and slipped away. Banished from heaven, I found this victim beaten, stripped, kneed, and left to cry, dropping my rope. Aside, I ran, ignored the uniforms. Then I remembered bread my flesh had eaten, the kiss that ate my flesh, flayed without hope. I held the man for nothing in my arms. And 
I will read this, this poem and the song that I'll play is the Lakota Women's Love Song. And this poem is in honor of Anna Mae Pictuaquash, who was one of those crazy ones. Crazy in the sense that harjo means crazy, which means brave beyond words. And she was one of our warriors who was warned to be silent or she would be killed. And she was killed, but not for long. She's still, she's still here with us. It's called For Anime Picked to a Quash, whose spirit is present here and in the dappled stars. For we remember the story and must tell it again so we may all live. the sky blurred with mist and wind. I am amazed as I watch the violet heads of crocuses erupt from the stiff earth after dying for a season. As I have watched my own dark head appear each morning after entering the next world to come back to this one amazed. It is the way in the natural world to understand the place the ghost dancers named after the heartbreaking destruction. Anime, everything and nothing changes. You are the shimmering young woman who found her voice when you were warned to be silent or have your body cut away from you like an elegant weed. You are the one whose spirit is present in the dappled stars. They prance and lope like colored horses who stay with us through the streets of these steely cities. And I have seen them nuzzling the frozen bodies of tattered drunks on the corner. This morning, when the last star is dimming and the buses grind toward the middle of the city, I know it is 10 years since they buried you, the second time in Lakota, a language that could free you. I heard about it in Oklahoma or New Mexico, how the wind howled and pulled everything down in a righteous anger. It was the women who told me, and we understood wordlessly the ripe meaning of your murder. As I understand, 10 years later, after the slow changing of the seasons, that we have just begun to touch the dazzling whirlwind of our anger. We have just begun to perceive the amazed world that ghost dancers entered crazily, beautifully.
Thank you. And this is called Letter from the End of the 20th Century. And this was written after a conversation in a long taxi ride from the middle of downtown Chicago to O'Hare Airport. And I always get into, for some reason, I always get into these really intense conversations with taxi drivers. <laughs> because you know most of them are from other colonized lands and they come here to make a living. And I've heard all kinds of histories. I mean, they, they, I start talking to them, they ask me, sometimes I think I'm from Pakistan or someplace else or I look familiar and then we start talking, I tell them where I come from. And I've learned Kurdish history, you know, <laughs> I have learned about Ghana, Nigeria, all kinds of places, and heard amazing stories of survival. And this is about, um, this is called, again, Letter from the End of the 20th Century. I shared a half hour of my life this morning with Rami, an Igbo man from northern Nigeria who drove me in his taxi to the airport. Chicago rose up as a mechanical giant with soft insides buzzing around to keep it going. We were part of the spin. Rami told the story of his friend, who one morning around seven, a morning much like this one, was filling his taxi with gas. He was imagining home, a village whose memories had given him sustenance to study through his degree and would keep him going one more year until he had the money he needed to return. As the sun broke through the gray morning, he heard his mother tell him the way she had told him when he was a young boy, how the son had once been an Igbo and returned every morning to visit distant relatives. These memories were the coat that kept him warm on the streets of ice. He was interrupted by a young man who asked him for money. A young man who was like so many he saw on his daily journey onto the street to collect fares. Oh no, sorry man, I don't have anything I can give you, he said, as he patted the pockets of his worn slats, his thin nylon jacket. He was saving every penny because he knew when he returned, he'd be taking care of a family a family several houses large. He turned back to the attention of filling his gas tank. What a beautiful morning, almost warm, and the same sun, the same Ebo, looking down on him in the streets of the labyrinth far, far from home. And just like that, he was gone from a gunshot wound at the back of his head, the hit of a casual murderer. As we near the concrete plains of O'Hare, I imagine the spirit of Rami's friend at the door of his mother's house, the bag of dreams in his hands dripping with blood. His mother's tears make a river of red stars to an empty moon.
The whole village mourns with her. The ritual of tears and drums summon the ancestors who carry his spirit into the next world. There he can still hear the drums of his relatives as they accompany him on his journey. He must settle the story of his murder before joining his ancestors or he will come back a ghost. The smallest talking drum is an insistent heart, leads his spirit to the killer, a young Jamaican immigrant who was traced to his apartment because his shirt of blood was found by the police thrown off in the alley with his driver's license in the pocket. He searches for his murderer in the bowels of Chicago and finds him shivering in a cramped jail cell. He could hang him or knife him and it would be called suicide and it would be the easiest thing. But his mother's grief moves his heart. He hears the prayers of the young man's mother. There is always a choice, even after death. He gives the young man his favorite name and calls him his brother. The young killer is then no longer shamed, but filled with remorse and cries all the cries he has stored for a thousand years. He learns to love himself as he never could because his enemy, who has every reason to destroy him, loves him. That's the story that follows me everywhere and won't let me sleep. From Tallahassee grounds to Chicago to my home near the Rio Grande, it sustains me through these tough distances. I'll end with grace. And I was inspired to write this poem by, the, by Jim Welch's work and the language in his work and the humor, which a lot of people don't see. Like he said, they think his works are pretty grim, but he's very funny. And that humor is what has is why we are all here to speak with you and to read to you and be with you. It's why we're here with you. This is called Grace. I think of wind and her wild ways, the year we had nothing to lose and lost it anyway, in the cursed country of the fox. We still talk about that winter how the cold froze imaginary buffalo on the stuffed horizon of snowbanks. The haunting voices of the starved and mutilated broke fences crashed our thermostat dreams, and we couldn't stand it one more time. So once again, we lost a winter in stubborn memory, walked through cheap apartment walls, skated through fields of ghosts into a town that never wanted us in the epic search for grace. Like coyote, like rabbit, we could not contain our terror and clowned our way through a season of false midnights. We had to swallow that town with laughter so it would go down easy as honey. And one morning, as the sun struggled to break ice, and our dreams had found us with coffee and pancakes in a truck stop along Highway 80. 
we found Grace. I could say Grace was a woman with time on her hands, or a white buffalo escaped from memory. But in that dingy light, it was a promise of balance. We once again understood the talk of animals, and spring was lean and hungry with the hope of children and corn. I would like to say, with grace, we picked ourselves up and walked into the spring thaw. We didn't. The next season was worse. You went home to Leech Lake to work with the tribe, and I went south in wind. I am still crazy. I know there is something larger than the memory of a dispossessed people. We have seen it. Thank you. Our next reader, Sherman Alexi, is a Spokane and Coeur d'Alene Indian from Wellpinnet, Washington, on the Spokane Reservation. There's a current car commercial uh, with the catch line, is this a great country or what? And that's a line that goes through my mind when I contemplate the fact that uh, Sherman Alexi's uh, publisher for his award-winning poetry is Hanging Loose Press, which is based in Brooklyn, New York. Is this a great country or what? Um, this business of fancy dancing, uh, his first collection, um, I believe, was published in 1992 and selected as a notable book of the year by the almighty New York Times Book Review. Uh, and his latest collection, First Indian on the Moon, was published uh, last year, uh, also by Hanging Loose Press. Meanwhile, his first uh, work of fiction, the story collection, the Lone Ranger and Tonto Fist Fight in Heaven was published to great acclaim by Atlantic Monthly Press in 1993 and republished this year in paperback by Harper Perennial. Atlantic Monthly Press will publish uh, his first novel, The Illustrated History of the Reservation Blues, in spring 1995. Sherman Alexi. It's a great honor for me to be here. Uh, none of what I do would be possible without these people who I'm reading with tonight, and it's a great, great honor for me to be here. Joy talked about mothers and fathers, and while my mother and father uh, definitely influenced my stories, these are also my mothers and fathers, and without their words and music, none of mine would be possible. Uh, they were very brave at a time when people weren't listening. I didn't start out as a writer. I went to college pre-med. Uh, I grew up on a reservation. I suppose like any small community, the smart kids have to be doctors or lawyers. And uh, I think that's especially true on a reservation. I was very bright, very young. And uh, my mom decided I was going to be a doctor in about kindergarten. And in fact, uh, kept buying me little fake you know, <laughs> doctor bags and uh, going on and on about this. and. Uh, I got to college, I took human anatomy class and uh, fainted three times. 
and uh, called home and said, Mom, uh, I don't think uh, this is going to work. I, I, I keep fainting when I see the ISO organs, which are short for isolated organs. And you'd open fridges and there'd be an arm in there with a, <laughs> with a Coke in the crook of the arm. And uh, there'd be livers hanging around. And uh, uh, that's just not culturally acceptable for me. And uh, I mean, I didn't see arms laying around anywhere on my reservation. I mean, we didn't even dissect frogs, you know. None of the kids could do it. Uh, we kept thinking, but that might be my cousin. I don't know. <laughs> 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 so uh, I started thinking, well, okay, I can't be a doctor. I didn't want to be a lawyer because I saw what lawyers did to our reservations and, uh, uh, and for them now, but back then it was to them mostly. And uh, I didn't want to be a lawyer, so I thought, okay, no doctor, no lawyer, so what's third on the list of lucrative professions in this country? And I thought, uh, poetry. And so I took a writing class at Washington State University uh, with Alex Quo, who I'm going to read from tonight. He's a poet and a, a short story writer and a novelist uh, and a uh, great friend of mine. And uh, I wrote five poems for his class. It's first class, first five poems I ever wrote. And uh, before the next class, he took me outside before the class. And I thought, oh, great, he's going to tell me I'm horrible at this. And, and I was really worrying about what I was going to have to become then. <laughs> I mean, medicine, law, poetry, and then I thought, well, what's below that? I mean, accounting. And uh, <laughs> so I'll read this poem by Alex. And actually, Alex was the writer. I, I grew up on a reservation, and uh, nobody ever told me there were Indian writers. And Alex Quo, it took Alex Quo, a Chinese American, to tell me there were Native American writers. And he introduced me to, to Scott and Joy and James and J Welch and, and this, you know, all this huge body of Native American literature. And, and uh, so he's the greatest influence on me. And I read this poem by him. It's called A Chinaman's Chance, Shanghai, 1945. When the bombs dropped on us at the end of the war, no one knew which side did it. We were under blankets, beds, that inside table, even chairs. Later, when I walked out of the drop zone, I counted the steps that were not mapped at the beginning, wanting everyone to have the same necessary things. Hundreds were queued up on every street corner for air-dropped powdered milk, chocolate, condoms by the same planes that dropped the bombs the night before, if the truth be known. I had to kill to get away. Lucky, as luck would have it. I wasn't born in the 18th century. Mozart loved slurs then. For heroes now, I retain Clemente, Gould, my two sons, and what the wind leaves. They have been here all this time, nearer my life, nearer my starfield for direction. I call on the far points that insist at intervals without explanation that left with me in the last unmarked C-46 
like that last flight out of Casablanca in 1940 in the fog and at gunpoint, just like that, shutting out of a life, leaping out past the finish. Do not mistake me or look for me in another meaning where I won't be found. In a sense, we have all survived. Our words depend on it with each chance. I'd like to read a couple new poems uh, working on them still. So uh, this is actually sorted because Donna Brooke, who is a friend of mine, kept telling me, when are you going to write about, you know, I mean, you're writing about the reservation, but now you're traveling everywhere. You're doing all this stuff. You're, I'm going to Europe and England and seeing all the country now. I've, seen, I've been in 37 states in two years, and uh, United Airlines loves me. And, uh, you know, I, but they keep sending me these free flight coupons because of the frequent flyer miles things, but I don't want to go anywhere because I've already traveled so much, but they make great gifts because you can give them away. So uh, I've got my dad on a plane, which is an amazing thing. Uh, and uh, he said it was okay, but it wasn't what he expected. And I kept wondering what he expected. <laughs> <laughs> but he wouldn't tell me. <laughs> so this one's called Airplane, Airport, Airline, Air in the bottom of the ninth inning. It's for Diane. Over Albuquerque, we look down to see all of those complicated streets which will forever cause pizza delivery men of the future to lose their way, <laughs> but which are empty now, where no houses have been built yet, but where those houses will soon be developed. Whole neighborhoods will rise inorganically from the desert floor. Then, here and there, a solitary house, original in its frame, once loosely connected to the city, now surrounded by those streets and ghosts and ghosts of streets and houses to be. There must be an old man waiting all alone in one of those solitary houses. Is he white, Indian, Mexican, or does it matter? It does matter, doesn't it? Knowing that soon, very soon, Somebody else's idea of the West will come knocking loudly at his door. We both saw Yanni, the new age musician and hero of late night television commercials in the Denver airport at the same time. Although Diane said his name aloud before I could actually remember his name, and it was exciting for a moment, our brush with American celebrity. But then I remembered Yanni is not all that famous. This is just America. And Diane and I kept our distance, more intent on making our next connection. But I wonder how we would have reacted if Chuck Berry had come strolling into our lives. Oh, turn down the flutes and harps, pound those keyboards until Beethoven rolls over, rolls over, rolls over. Give Chuck his guitar and we'd be dancing, dancing up and down the escalators. We'd be that much more in love. Southwest Airlines is coming to Spokane. They've arrived in Spokane with their cheap discount flights to almost anywhere. Well, that's not true. They only fly to those cities where the planes can land, unload, and depart in 30 minutes or so. Oh, cheap flights, cheap flights. 
I can get on a plane here in the Spokane Airport and end up in Oakland, in Los Angeles, on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, but let's not get carried away. I can barely breathe. I want to find somebody to love that will fly in the seat beside me and hold my hand, maybe take up half of the two-for-one fare. But wait. I'm already in love, and I'm rich, 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 so who cares about cheap flights? I'm an Indian with money, and that makes me dangerous. <laughs> the flight attendants are nervous because they know I don't belong on a Southwest flight. They wanted to leave me waiting forever in the airport, but they couldn't do it because I walked perfectly through the metal detector because I bought my ticket with cash because this is a democracy. Oh, I love these flight attendants. They are white Americans in company polo shirts and matching shorts. They have skinny tan legs and I watch their calf muscles when they walk up and down the aisles. I am not in love with them. I lied. But I am in love with Indians. And I want to buy tickets for every Indian on my reservation and we can all choose between orange juice and water. between the 6 a.m. flight and the noon flight because the time of departure makes all the difference because I want to be the very first passenger to read the airline magazine. <laughs> I'm funny that way. Can you hear me talking over the drone of the engine? Mitch Williams. A fastball pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies gave up the 1993 World Series winning home run in the bottom of the ninth inning of Joe Carter, an outfielder for the Toronto Blue Jays. This is not a metaphor. Mitch Williams threw the one pitch by which his whole life will be forever measured while Joe Carter could strike out in every plate appearance he makes during the rest of his life and everybody would still remember his World Series home run. This is not a metaphor. I think of those baseball players tonight as I crawl into bed with my wife. The sheets are cold and it's snowing outside, which means that it's 45 degrees outside and there are four inches of snow on the ground. I know there was somebody playing baseball in this city right now, despite the cold and snow, and I want to thank them for their passion and insanity. Baseball is not a metaphor. Let's say I pull my wife closer to me under the covers. No. Let's say she pulls me closer under the covers. I might be thinking of Mitch Williams and Joe Carter. She might be thinking of Mitch Williams and Joe Carter, too. <laughs> Who can explain what we think about when we are making love? I can be suddenly distracted by the news of the world and the radio is turned off because she cannot concentrate if there is any music at all. She listens too closely to the lyrics. Afterwards, in the dark, I try not to fall asleep because she once read that a man only feels sleepy immediately following orgasm. If he can stay awake for a few minutes, then he can stay awake forever. I am awake. I look through the dark, try to find her features, touch her face, her back, her arm, although I cannot see for sure. 
I know her eyes are open. She touches my face. I fall asleep. I dream about Mitch Williams and Joe Carter. Baseball has nothing to do with how much I love my wife. She made me promise never to read that one if she's in the audience. <laughs> I thought this would be an appropriate one to read because uh, it's actually another influence. Uh, Ted Berrigan, by way of Gary Snyder, by way of Frank O'Hara, by way of you know, Bob Hershon, actually. So, uh, things for an Indian to do in New York City. Walk down the Avenue of the Americas, even though it's actually Sixth Avenue. And I mean, walk right down the middle of the Avenue of the Americas and tell all of the cab drivers I love them. <laughs> or walk down the middle of Wyckoff Street in Brooklyn at three in the morning, waving my arms like a crazy man, because some New Yorker once told me it will scare all of those muggers away but I think it means those muggers will end up mugging an Indian, acting like a crazy man. <laughs> but maybe I can make them laugh and they'll leave me enough money for another cannoli, 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 or convince myself that I look more like a mugger than one who is to be mugged. Because I have brown skin, long hair, and those brown skin, long haired muggers will all nod their heads at me whenever I walk by. <laughs> brother to brother, but wait. Everybody is a mugger in New York City. Everybody is a mugger in New York City, and that white man in his wool suit just lifted my wallet and disappeared down the avenue of the Americas, which, as we all know by now, is actually Sixth Avenue. And lucky me, he only took my throw-down wallet, which held a 20, and a sepia photograph of Mr. X. Read Ted Berrigan's sonnets and wonder how we are all alike, but still have absolutely nothing in common. I stop bearded men and beautiful women in the streets, and they're all poets here. Everybody here is bearded and beautiful. Everybody is a poet. I roll a drunk over in a doorway, and he quotes Robert Frost. <laughs> My God, he's homeless and formalist. <laughs> How much money should I drop into his tin cup? The whole world does not belong in any one place, but here we are, all of us gathered in Times Square with our guns drawn and teeth bared. I want to find somebody to kill because of their skin color. No, I want to kill a bus full of children because of their parents' religion. And I want to build a hate machine in the middle of Times Square and call it a piano. I want to start a circus in Manhattan and call it a church. I want to hail a mounted policeman and call him God. What time is it? I stop a passerby in this cruel city and ask her. It's 12.02 p.m., she tells me and keeps walking. She actually gave me the correct time. <laughs> Oh, the kindness. And I stop watchwearer after watchwearer asking for time, and they all give it to me. I could live here forever. 
No, that's not true at all. I'm lying because it's nearly 1.34 p.m. now, and I have only an hour before I travel back home. And there was nothing as sad as a bad guitar player in the hotel room next door at some insane hour, moving his clumsy fingers from chord to chord until you think in those long pauses between a B minor and F that he must be an Indian adopted as a young child by a white family and now confused and desperate has come to New York City to become a rock star, but hawks his guitar eventually for a bus ticket back home to his white parents who love him so much that they don't say a word about his new braids and they all travel to a powwow together, slightly embarrassed to find their feet tapping along in an imperfect rhythm with the drums. And I was looking for a happy ending somewhere here in the middle, but found a refrigerator abandoned on East 5th Street instead. In New York City, an entire family will soon live in that refrigerator. I know this because it happens on my reservation too. Then I think how my entire world used to be white. But this is New York City and everybody is brown here. But this is America too and everybody is still white. But then again, I know America is not white exactly, but it is white inexactly, without color, wanting this or that blood to stain its hands. And there's too much to do on some of these days. So I don't even leave the Brooklyn brownstone. I just go back to bed. And I'm frightened because I'm an Indian who knows the difference between Monet and Manet. So I just watch TV because I am an American Indian. And the walk to the subway can break all of my hearts. And about World Cup soccer on television, about those soccer riots in Europe, there would be riots in American stadiums during our particular games if the people who had reason to riot could afford the price for admission. But America, I think how your men will always find a more effective way to kill. No Indian would have ever invented an automatic bow and arrow. But I love you still in the way that I have been taught to love you with fear. So how is it possible that I could fall in love with every waitress and waiter in Manhattan? Oh, stop, I'm not in love with any of them. It must be the food. Although, although they are all gorgeous and horrible at their jobs. <laughs> so when they drop the plates and cups, it still sounds like music. Then I think to thank you for Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman, although they had only a little bit to do with the borough of Manhattan, even though all of us have a little bit to do with the borough of Manhattan, for the automobile and Orson Welles, for the fluoride in drinking water. Suddenly, there's another Indian on the subway sitting right beside me. Surprise, there's an Indian on the subway F train from Brooklyn to Manhattan on a Monday afternoon. Surprise, surprise, there is another Indian. I mean, another American Indian sitting on the subway seat next to me. Really, in the seat right beside me, our legs touch, and I am convinced that she's Indian, Native American, Aboriginal skin beneath her clothes. Why, she's Indian in her clothes. Her clothes are Indian because she's wearing them. Yes, yes, there's an Indian 
on the F train all the way from Brooklyn to Manhattan, and she loves me, she loves me, she loves me, she loves me, of course, she's my wife. <laughs> Thank you. Our final reader uh, slash performer uh, will be Muriel Miguel, who is a Huna and Rappahannock Indian, uh, who, continuing a theme, lives in Brooklyn. An actress, playwright, filmmaker, director, storyteller, performance artist, and probably a lot of other categories. I don't remember. I, I can't quite put her in. She's a founding member and a director of the Spider Woman Theater Group. Among the numerous pieces she has produced are The Rez Sisters, Winnie Two's Snake Oil Show from Wigwam City, and Reverberations, and Hot and Soft. She will be performing um, selections from the two latter theater pieces. And she wants me to uh, tell all of you that she is also directing her own daughter, Muriel Borst, in a performance piece, More Than Feathers and Beads, at the Native American Community House, 708 Broadway, second floor, at 8 o'clock tonight. Muriel Miguel. This is a gay country or what? Hi. I'm from Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn. I'm a city Indian, and when I think of my influences, you know, I, I, I do think of, of the Italian accent in Brooklyn. So Mary, so what happened? Are you finished now? It's okay, it's okay. All I have to do is clean off the top of the stove and make my gravy. <laughs> I always think of that when, I, when I'm working, that this is part of me, this is part of being Indian, growing up Indian in New York City in Brooklyn. <laughs> and I think of my uncles and my sisters who also influenced me, and the words sometimes that run around my head. I think of my Uncle Joe, when one time I asked him when he told the story about what happens in death and how you go away in canoes on this golden river. This is Kuna. And, uh, and he said, then you come to a, a, a gate and then you go and you all go into these very small canoes. And I said, uh, Uncle Joe, suppose you don't uh, fit into the canoe. He says, well, they break your legs. Up there, everybody the same. <laughs> so that's what I think of as my influences. And then I think of also of Beth Brandt, um, who is a Mohawk woman from Canada. And uh, in Spider-Woman, we use a lot of her work, a lot of the sounds and, and the feelings that she has put on paper. And uh, a lot of times, because I'm responsible for images, 
I bring in uh, the images and the words sometimes. And this is uh, from Beth Brand, Food and Spirits. And this piece is called This Place. And um, I'm just reading a bit of it. And this is about a young man who comes home to his reservation. And he has AIDS and he's told his mother. But now that he's on the reservation, he's really frightened and scared and he's afraid to die. And this is one of the ways that this family worked with him to let him die. But as I thought about it, the other thing is that it, it's also part of us, of what has happened in the invasion here. And this is not the first disease that we have had. And, and so the invasion coming in us, I find again, what she says here is how I feel so many times. The rattle was silent. The prophet was sitting in a hump, the fur around her neck electric like orange rough. Joseph sat, his laser eyes bright in the face of an old, old man. He spoke, his voice not audible, the words not recognizable, and David heard. They took parts of us and cut them up and threw them to the winds. They made lies we would believe. We looked for the parts to put ourselves back together, to put the earth back together. It is broken. We look for truth to put us all together again. There is a piece here, a part there. We scavenge and collect. Some pieces are lost. We will find them. Some parts are found, and we do not see them yet. We gather the pieces. David opened his eyes. The taste of tears was in his mouth. I saw it. The cat prophet jumped delicately on David's chest and licked the salt tears from his face. She sat back on her haunches and watched David speak. I saw my grandmother, my father, they touched me. He began coughing again, retching blood. Joseph held a towel to David's mouth and touched the young man's face. You found your parts, your pieces. Digging into his sack, he pulled out a white feather. This is from a whistling swan. They stop here in the spring before going on to Alaska. The thing about them, they never know what they'll find when they get there. They just know they got to get there. When our bodies are no longer here, we are still here. He stood up, his joints creaking and snapping. Your mother is coming. Sun is real bright today. It's a good day to go. He scooped Prophet up from David's lap and draped her across his shoulder. Thank you, Grandfather, David whispered, his breath coming in ragged bursts. David heard him go out the front door. He couldn't see, but he heard Joseph talking to the Prophet. He heard the truck door slam and the engine started rattling and wheezing. David moved his hands on the blanket to find the tin, the snakeskin, his ancestors' words, the feather. He touched them and felt Joseph's presence. The sound of his mother's car made him struggle to sit up. He heard the door open and the footsteps of his mother coming into the room. He felt her standing by him, her cool fingers touching his face and hands. He opened his mouth to say goodbye. When uh, we were working on a number of pieces, and particularly reverberations, 
uh, it was trying to find our spiritual way back into our lives again after certainly denying for many years our own spirituality. And it would come and go in spurts, especially with me. I had a mother that was a psychic who was called a witch in, a, in the neighborhood. And it was very difficult. I mean, I knew about, you know, vibes before people knew about vibes. She talked about vibes. She would touch my friends and say, mm-hmm, you okay, all right. And she, <laughs> she knew what you were talking of. She knew what you were thinking or what you were going to do. It was very disconcerting. So... I denied that for many, many years. I did not want to be like that. But to find my own way, I had to really finally say, these things has happened to me. These things did happen to me. And in reverb, because we tried to find our trail back, I had to admit that there were many things that happened to me. And one of them is this uh, piece I'm, I'm going to perform and it's about my grandmother. Can you hear me? Okay. My eyes went unfocused. I, I had to blink. And somebody came inside. A door opened. And a person came in from the back. I was still Muriel. I was still Muriel, but from behind my eyes, there was another person inside of me. My head split open and fell to the floor. My head split open and fell to the floor. My head split open and fell to the floor. And my grandmother stepped into my head. From the soft spot, that soft spot separated, it opened from the top of my head to the bottom of my head. My head split open and fell to the floor. My head split open and fell to the floor. And my grandmother stepped into my head. The sound, the sound, the sound of my blood whispering through gauze. The sound of blood, the sound of my heart, the sound of my heart thumping. My head split open and fell to the floor. My head split open and fell to the floor. And my grandmother stepped into my head. I was still Muriel. I was still Muriel. But behind my eyes, in my head, was my grandmother. My bones were swelled. The contour of my face changed. of my voice changing, my voice, my voice, my voice changing through the gauze, through the blood, through the gauze, my voice, my voice changed, my face changed, I changed, and that was the day my head split open and fell to the floor.
Uh, with, uh, also with Beth, she had a wonderful story about Trickster. And uh, she gave me this idea of what if, what if Trickster was not male? What if Trickster was female? What if, what if Trickster was a lesbian? So I wrote this story. I, this is from a piece called uh, Hot and Soft. And um, it's about erotica. Uh, and from the point of view of a native woman, erotica. And this is Trickster. And Trickster, um, <laughs> I always forget. Uh, trickster is, um, well, they're like those ones that can change gender, but they're also, they're rabbits, they're hawks, they're ravens, but it's, it's something that happens, like when you're walking down the street and uh, something whacks you in the head and you turn around, that's trickster. <laughs> so these are the tricksters. I was naked, she was naked. We are, were on a big round bed. We were nuzzling and sucking and sucking and nuzzling. She sucked my toe. I painted her toenails and blew on the polish. She had real big feet. <laughs> I mean, real big feet. Size 13, big feet. She got up out of bed, put on the robe, and went into the kitchen. And I thought to myself, how graceful she is with such big feet. <laughs> God, was I excited. God, was I clumsy. I started to paint my toenails, and I spilled nail polish all over the sheets. Ran to the bathroom, got the nail polish remover, cleaned the sheets. Now the whole room smells like nail polish remover. <laughs> Went to the window, opened up the window. God, was I excited. God, was I cold. <laughs> I shrugged my naked body into my gray Halston jacket. I sat down in the green velvet overstuffed chair felt for my gold cork-tipped brown Shermans and lit it with my turquoise and silver-covered stick. God, was I excited. God, was I bored. How <laughs> it both excited and bored. <laughs> she came into the room. She had a silver tray, and on the tray she had bread and butter, coffee, and a big white bowl filled with red ripe strawberries. She took the tray and put it on the bed. She took a ripe strawberry, put it into her mouth, bit it, and the juice made her fingertips red. Came over to me, took a strawberry, put it into my mouth and kissed me. Goddamn telephone rang. God, was I excited. 
God, was I jealous. She ran across the room, picked up the telephone, and giggled into the mouthpiece. I pinched her on the cheek. I kissed her neck. I pinched her ass. I slowly shrugged my naked body out of my second-hand gray Halston jacket. I laid down on the bed. She looked at me. I looked at her. She hung up the phone, ran across the room, and leapt upon me. She had me by the wrist. She was trying to kiss me. I said, no, 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 no. She bit me on the neck and laughed teasingly. I quickly turned her over, knocking the coffee off the bed and pushing her into the bread and butter. She tried to get up, I pushed her down. She tried to get up, I pushed her down. She tried to get up, I pushed her down. I slowly rubbed butter onto her hard, brown nipples. Tried to get up. I pushed her down. More butter. <laughs> I slowly licked the butter off her hard brown nipples. <laughs> Goddamn doorbell rang. God, was I excited? God, was I naked? <laughs> She gave me a white satin quilted dressing gown with pink lapels and a bell that just swirls around my feet. God, was I excited. I sat in the green velvet overstuffed chair, lit a gold cork tip brown Sherman with my turquoise and silver covered bick. Into the room came this very short woman with a derby on. <laughs> I went to her. I took her into my arms. I pulled her head back. I kissed her, crushed her to my chest. I pulled her head back, crushed her to my chest. I pulled her head back, I crushed her to her chest. I slowly put my tongue deep into her mouth. I picked her up, I put her down, and I said, there. She came into the room. This time, she had yogurt and pears. <laughs> A very short woman would not sit down. I grabbed her and put her on my knee. She was pouring yogurt into a bowl. She came over to me. She slowly squished the yogurt onto my head. God, was I excited. 
Tommy and Lori have to do it yourself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> expecting tonight, but that, that wasn't what I was expecting, but I'm glad I got it. Um, would you please offer a big round of applause for our five readers? And thank you. And thank you all for coming. Again, tomorrow evening uh, there will be a, a panel discussion, which will be no more standard than this reading, I have a feeling, at the Time Life Building, uh, the Time Life Auditorium, at 6.30. And it's open to the public. My daughter, my daughter's and I want to remind you that Muriel Borst, the daughter of Muriel Miguel, will be directed by her mother in More Than Feathers and Beads at the Native American Community House. 708 Broadway, 8 o'clock tonight. Thank you.